been a couple of weeks since we've been in the Gospel of John. Uh, last Sunday, it was right on the tail end of my trip down to Arizona. And so had some other guys, uh, uh, Rick was sharing, and, and then uh, Joe from the Gideons and all. But uh, where we left off was at the end of the six illegal and trumped up trials that Jesus went through on his way to the cross. And and remember, Pilate was in a squeeze. The, he had the religious leaders on him, and, and he wasn't a very strong leader. He was a weak leader, and he was easily pushed around by these guys, and they came to him with trumped up charge. They really didn't have a charge. And, and, and so uh, that was the end of, like I said, six trials where he starts out uh, before Annas, the former high priest, and goes to Caiaphas, and then he goes to Herod, and he goes back, and then he goes to Pilate, and then, and, and so it, it, all the way through, nobody had a charge against him other than he had claimed to be the Son of God, and so that's the crux of what happened. And then, if you remember, what happened with Pilate is what really kind of capped his decision to go ahead and crucify Jesus, even though he literally washed his hands in a bowl and said, I wash my hands in the blood of this innocent man. Uh, go ahead and crucify him was because they had threatened to take him to tell on him, to tattle. And, and they said, well, you know, you're no friend of Caesar's if you're going to let this guy live. And, and uh, he being married to the granddaughter of Caesar, of, of Caesar Augustus, uh, was sort of, not sort of, he was, he was at that point very concerned for his political well-being, because he had gained his office through family ties, not because he was some you know, great leader. Anyway, uh, we left off in verse 15 uh, last time around, and uh, we're going to pick up in verse 16, which is a simple statement. And, and it says, and then he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, to them, to the crowd, to the Jews, to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. Now, at this point in the narrative, I got to thinking, I, I, a couple of weeks ago as I started to look at this aspect, this portion of the scripture, I began to ask the Lord, just, Lord, how do you want me to teach this? This is, this is the pinnacle. This is the actual act that accomplishes our redemption, that purchases me from the jaws of hell. Literally, that it is. This is the purchase price. How do you want this to be taught? How I mean, this is just. It, it's it's a very solemn thing when we look at the crucifixion, and 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 it's sacred insofar as this is Jesus actually doing what he had prophesied he would do, and this is God doing what he had prophesied to all the way back in the book of Genesis when he said he will. Bruise your heel, but you'll crush his head. Speaking of Jesus being the one whose heel would be bruised. And in the cross, Satan would be crushed through the crushing of Christ. And so uh, I was looking at it. It reminded me of a scene in Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, after the children of Israel, just a little background on Nehemiah, after they had been in bondage, after they had been in exile for 70 years, uh, Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, is released to go back and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been thrashed by the Babylonians. And so he is commissioned to go and rebuild the walls. Another guy, Ezra, his contemporary, 
was commissioned to go back and rebuild the temple because the tre- Solomon's temple was in shambles as well. And, and they went with a, another guy's Zerubbabel to actually carry out the work. But Ezra began to re-implement worship in Israel coming back from exile. Well, what happens is somebody found a book of the law, the Bible, in that time. All there was was the Old Testament. It wasn't old to them. It was the Bible. It was, it was the word. And so somebody found a copy in the temple, in, in the ruins, and they brought it to Ezra. And Ezra went, and, and he actually, they, it says they built a wooden podium for him, and, and it was elevated a little bit. And, and I don't know if he was a typical shorter Jewish guy or what, but, but they, they got him off the ground a little. And that the whole congregation of Israel, I mean, thousands of people assemble. And, and he stands at this podium and he opens the scroll of the law. And at the moment that he does, all of the people stand up. And there's just like this divine tension there. And they begin to lift their hands and to worship God. And, and all that Ezra does, he doesn't give a bunch of commentary. He just starts to read the Bible. And as he reads it, the people begin to weep. They are so moved, so touched. And there's some interesting things that I'll go through after I read through this, uh, this account of the crucifixion. But as I was praying, as the Lord was just kind of bearing witness to my heart to, to show me, uh, I, I concluded that all I want to do initially here is we're going to read through the entire account of the crucifixion without commentary. Now, I'll come back, and we'll, we'll, we'll after we come to the Lord's table, have communion, and all, I'll come back, and, and I'll unpack the passage a bit. But I think it's really important at times like this for us to just simply, we're not going to have words on the screen. We're just going to read. And, and I just if you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 19, and we're going to begin in verse 17, and we're simply going to read what God's word has to say. You don't have to stand up and raise up your hands and all that like they did in Nehemiah's day. But I, I just was impressed by the fact that God's word has its own power. It is the word of God. And, and as we read this, open your heart, absorb what's going on here, because this is, as I said, this is your redemption and mine. If you have come to faith in Christ, turn from the old life, this is where it's at. And yes, there's more. Because as we get into the resurrection, we see that that's where then we have the power to live, the power to carry this thing out called Christianity. But this is what makes you a Christian or not as we read this. So beginning in verse 17, I'll read all the way through to verse 30. Uh, it says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part and also the tunic. 
Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Wow. We're going to receive communion this morning. And while the guys are passing out the elements, if you come up and do that, uh, share a couple of things with you. As we look at God's word, as we look at this account of the crucifixion, uh, it's important to understand. Thank you. That this is something that Jesus did on purpose. It wasn't him being executed. We, we know that. We know that that's, this is part of God's divine plan. As I mentioned, from Genesis forward, we see that here, God creates man. He creates woman, and, and he gives them dominion over the earth. And, and there in the very early chapters of the Bible, as things just begin, that things go terribly wrong, and man surrenders dominion of the earth to Satan, to the enemy, to the serpent. And from that point forward, the entire Bible, all that is written from that point forward is about redemption. It's the, it's, it's the, if there's one theme to the Bible, it's the book of redemptive history. And throughout history, it has been God's work to draw man into right relationship with himself. And so as we look at this, as I mentioned, this is the pinnacle of our redemption. It is the act itself. It is the thing that Jesus did, that he was born to do. He said, for this reason I was born, for this reason I came into the world, that he would take the wrath of God, that he would suffer the wrath of God. The wrath of God would be poured out on him. And how in, in a mysterious way we don't understand the mechanics of it, but when Jesus cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, from the cross, and, and translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That there was some kind of a tearing in God himself as the Father turned his back on the Son and placed the sins of humanity on him. We've talked a bit about the physical things that Jesus endured in going to the cross. We looked at the scourging and looked at that in detail, gory detail, I might add. And yet the spiritual horror that Jesus would endure would far exceed anything that he physically suffered. And he suffered 
a horrible physical death. He'd enjoyed full-blown fellowship with the Father, with his Father, from birth. And there, as darkness would cover the land, thank you, as darkness would cover the land, the Father would hear the Son. I, I think about that. As a father, what if I could hear my son's agonizing cries through the darkness? And yet, because of you, because of me, he remained on that cross. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12 that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after he had made a purification for sin. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 and 10, after the people had been listening to the word of God going out, it says, Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn. I think that that's significant. He says, do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Then he says this, and I think that this is a word for us this morning. He says, he says, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. As we consider the cross, it's not a time for us to be bummed out. Yes, we look at it, and it hurts when we look at it, and we look at the cost that sin required, the price that sin required in Jesus going to that cross and hanging on that cross. The only one in all of history who did not have that coming, who, who would not deserve death, to go and to, to, to go up on that cross in your place, in my place. So, as I said in Hebrews, it says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy that was set before him? You. Me. That's, that's what he did. He could look down through history. We saw when he was with his guys in, in the upper room that he was looking down through history and telling them, Look, take this to the world and take this to the people who have not yet believed. And I'm praying for them as well as for you that they would believe that these things are so. He actually prays for you and I. So as we consider these things and we go to the Lord's table this morning, I would just pray that you would open your heart. If there's anything standing in the way of, of receiving the elements of communion this morning, if there's anything standing between you and God, perhaps unrepentant sin, perhaps ought with your neighbor. The Bible says that if you want to come and bring your gift, to, to first leave your gift at the altar and then go and be reconciled to your neighbor, then come back and present your gift. And so in that, he's saying, keep short accounts with me. Part of what we do as we come to the Lord's table is we keep short accounts with the Lord. And, and so, and that's simple prayer, guys. Just simply saying, Lord, I know that since the last time I was here, since the last time I held these elements in my hand, that things have gone on in my life, and, and I want to give them to you. So if the Lord's putting his hand on an area, surrender it to him. Be current. Be cleansed. 
the Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to to forgive us for our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's all brand new the moment that we do that. He meets us there. And so as we come to the Lord's table now, I'm going to read a little bit from Luke chapter 22. Jesus speaking to his men here at the Last Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I've desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Hours before the account that we're reading in the Gospel of John. For I say to you, I'll no longer eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And afterwards he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So as we consider the bread, the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that he became sin that we could become the righteousness of God in him. And so let's pray together. Father, as we consider the body of Christ, the body of Jesus broken for us, Lord, that as he went to that cross, as he was crucified, that that was everything that I needed, that we needed to be able to gain eternity with you in your presence. And without that, without receiving by faith that transaction that we're lost as we'll look at these two thieves this morning and and each of them and their disposition. So, Father, we pray that you would forgive us for our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you would, uh, just as we consider the cross, as we consider this bread, as we consider your body that's broken for us, Lord, we're thankful. We don't mourn. We, we, are, we rejoice in the work of redemption, redemption for each of us. We rejoice that you would do that solely for us, that for the joy that was set before you. We thank you, Lord. Words are not enough, but we thank you in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread. In Luke, 22, uh, we also read following. It says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Covenant. It means contract. It means agreement. And the new covenant is this. It's done. As we'll look at this morning, it is finished. The work of redemption is complete. There's nothing to be added. You can't do anything more than to come to him by faith and to say, Lord, I believe this. I truly believe this. And in believing it, it's yours. That's all he says. It's the free gift. It's the gift that's offered. The only thing you have to do is receive it. If you haven't done that this morning, I would encourage you, make that transaction right now. Receive the Lord into your heart. Turn from the old life. Because it doesn't work. Been there. It doesn't work. And receive Christ into your heart this morning. As he says, the covenant in my blood, the old covenant, the law, was do it and live. 
It required more than faith of us. But the new covenant in his blood is it's done. So love, therefore love. And that's it, folks. It, it is so simple. The, the, the transaction is so simple. The, the message is so profound that we can miss it. As we'll see, there, there's nothing we can add. There's nothing that he would add to this transaction. So with that, let's pray. Father, as we take the cup, as we consider your blood, which was poured out for us, as we look at the work of redemption, the work of purchasing us, Lord, that, that you went to that cross with that in mind, with that being the sole purpose. And again, Lord, words escape us. We're, we're forever grateful that you did that to ensure eternal life for any who would come. And thank you. Let's take the cup. As I mentioned, I want to go back and, and uh, just go through some of this. I've got a number of slides, too, that I'm going to show you this morning. Um, uh, but uh, in verse 17, it says, And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called uh, the place of a skull. And when it says he went out to a place, the word there is topos. It's where we get topography. What he's talking about is not... It's not like a building. It's, it's, a, it's an area. And so he goes out to an area called the Place of a Skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him in verse 18, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. So something that's interesting is all four of the Gospels obviously discuss crucifixion. None of them go into great depth. And I think that that's interesting because what's happening here, the writers are not impressed to go into the gory details, but they do go into enough depth and they bring different things in. And we're going we're gonna to sort of incorporate that, blend the Gospels. You know, I, I like to do that. Uh, we're going to blend the Gospels a bit. But uh, I would encourage you to go and to read the other Gospel accounts. I'm not going to literally read them this morning. But... Here, John of all four Gospels summarizes the events of the crucifixion. And, and it's because he, he, John's whole point is to bring us to believe, to bring us to a place where we come to believe. We, we, we have faith. We believe what he says. And through believing, we come to faith in the things that he's done. And so that's what's happening here. They, they don't give lengthy details of the crucifixion, but... Again, I want to I suggest to you that the inward details, the inward act of what's going on here far exceeds anything that's happening physically. I think also that the gospel writers, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, avoided drawing us into an emotional response in this. Uh, very much like what Nehemiah said. He said, you know, don't, don't mourn this. Understand this, that this was done for the joy that you can have of belonging to Christ. And there's great joy in that. So it says here that he was bearing his cross. Now, uh, we know that what the Romans did in crucifixion, when a man was sentenced to die, that before they put the man on the cross, they put the cross on the man. And, and they used what's called a patibulum. And, and, and this patibulum was a large beam. It could weigh 100 pounds. 
that they would tie to the arms of the condemned man. And then they would march him from the place where he had been judged to the place where he was going to be crucified as a public spectacle. And they did this very much like, remember back in the 18th century, they did public hangings and they would actually, you know, people would show up at these things, these executions and, and watch the guy go and his head, his neck snap and all of that twisted stuff. But I mean, they would do that publicly as a demonstration of, look, if you don't mind yourself, this could happen to you. So now there were three crosses that had been prepared that day, one for each of these two thieves that we're going to talk about, and then one for Barabbas. But we know who's going in Barabbas' place here. And so they would do this as an act of humiliation as he would go through the city. And in Mark 15, Mark tells us that, uh, that they compelled, the Romans compelled a certain man, that when they compelled you, you didn't have a choice. If they put their broadsword on your shoulder and said, carry his cross, you wanted that broadsword to go back into its sheath and not the next step because the Romans didn't mess around. And so this guy named Simon the Cyrenian, he, and you know, Hollywood does interesting things. They always show this guy looking like a Greek. Um, that's where Libya is now. It's northern Africa. Chances are better than not that he was a black man. And so they, they compel this guy, Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and there's lots more about them in the book of Acts and then in Romans 16, where uh, Paul is having a discussion. He's actually greeting people in Rome, and, and Rufus is one of them, and his mother, who had been kind to Paul. I won't go into all that. So these guys are known, and this is known to John. It wasn't known at that moment, but as John writes this, he recalls, oh yeah, Simon, the father of Rufus, oh, and Alexander too. Oh yeah, I remember them from when I spent time with them, and then I wrote to them after they moved on to Rome. So it says that he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Now, it was Passover time. Actually, Passover was the night before. The next seven days would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so he's coming into the city to the feast, and, and the Romans tag this guy, and they get him to carry Jesus' cross. I want to mention something here. Um, as many of you know, I, I grew up in the LDS church, and they don't believe that it's a cross. Neither do Jehovah's Witnesses. And they believe it was a stake. And I would beg to differ because, number one, with a stake, you don't need a patibulum. The, the upright portion of the cross would have been stationary in the ground and there permanently. It was they, they would build this thing and then they would put the man on it with the crossbeam, with the patibulum. So there's that. Um, also, and, you know, when we picture the cross, a lot of times we picture the guy way up here. He was probably just right off the ground. These were short crosses. Two different types as well. There was one, one that looked like a capital T. It had the crossbar on top. They would just set it on top. Uh, and then they would nail the guy's hands and feet to the posts. But the other type would be that where they would have it fitted and the, the, the patibulum would actually go into a slot and the cross would extend above. And we believe that this is the type of cross that Jesus was put on simply because they hung the sign over his head and there wasn't anything to hang it on if they had the first style that the T, the capital T style instead of the lowercase T style cross. So uh, the other thing too is when Jesus is prophesying to Peter about the manner in which he would die, he says, 
men will come and they will gird you and take you where you don't want to go and they will spread your hands. Speaking of the manner in which he would be crucified. And Peter, as history tells us, as secular history as well, is documented that he was crucified upside down. And, and so I don't believe it was a stake. I don't, and yes, the Greek word could mean either one. But I also think that with organizations that don't truly represent Christ as he is, that, uh, and again, I'm going to give an opinion, Satan hates the cross. Our enemy hates the cross. And where he can put in a cheap duplicate, he will. So as we look at this, we see that Jesus was crucified with two thieves. In Luke chapter 23, says that one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you're under the same condemnation? And in, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, You'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. I repeat that. When Jesus, at the end of this passage, says it is finished, it is finished. It's not almost done. There's some false doctrine out there that says he had to go down into hell and do some stuff there and do all this stuff because it says that he descended to the lower parts of the earth and led high hosts of captives. Yes, he emptied Sheol. And, and uh, oh, I could rabbit trail on that, but I'm not going to. Got a lot to cover. But he emptied Sheol, but he didn't have to do more work. When it was finished, it was finished. And never forget that. Don't go with some of the garbage that's out there that will say, well, he had to do a little more. And no. No. Uh, and so you think, well, okay, if he says, today you'll be with me in paradise, what about like in First Thessalonians chapter 4 where it says, that with the rapture, that the dead in Christ will rise first. How do you reconcile that? Is there soul sleep? Is there, you know, are, do, are, are our souls asleep and then we rise in the resurrection? What is this all about? I don't understand. And the best way I can describe that to you and explain that to you folks is that both are true. The, the Bible teaches to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It also teaches that the dead in Christ will rise first. And if you look at it from man's standpoint, they seem to not reconcile. They seem to be contrary to one another. If you look at it from God's standpoint, which is really kind of the better standpoint, um, a little bit, like a lot, God invented time. Time is a construct of his, and, and physics are a construct of his. You know, I, I was talking to somebody when I was in Arizona, and the guy was talking about, you know, well, you know, I, I think the Egyptians, they went to the Reed Sea instead of the Red Sea, and there was a big wind, and it parted the waters, and da 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 And he was giving me all of this. And the guy's a scientist. He's a great guy. I really loved spending time with him. But I asked him at one point, and I, I just said, Bob, can I ask a question? And he said, sure. I said, with what you were talking about, with that book, did that guy ever go into the miraculous at all? And he, said, he thought about it for a minute. He said, well, no, he didn't. I said, well, I would submit to you, this guy has trouble believing that God is a God of the miraculous. For him, he's just being God. We call it miraculous because it goes against the laws of physics. 
But you've got to understand, God owns the laws of physics. He can twist them whenever he wants. Jesus made a regular practice of it during his earthly ministry. We call it a miracle. He calls it just being God because he's over it. He controls it. He contains it. It's the same thing with time. And so from a finite standpoint, because our lives are linear, we look at it and go, well, how can you be absent from the body and present with the Lord and have be part of the dead that rise first and all that? It doesn't make sense because we're linear. We're finite. We don't think in infinite terms. God does. And so both can be true. He's outside of time. And so it, it's not like I'm going to die. If I die before my wife and she lives another 30 years or what? Yeah, right. But I mean, but if she lives a long time, it's not like I have to wait 30 years in the grave and it's like, eh, eh, come on, you know. No, the moment I die, I am one heartbeat from heaven and I might be part of the resurrection if I die before the rapture and the rapture takes place. So you got to understand that we get tangled up with things like this and, and it's just best to trust God to say, you know what, Lord, you're infinite, I'm finite. Things that don't appear to reconcile, you've got it worked out, and, and I'm just not going to worry. I remember hanging that one up when I was in Bible college. I was like, oh, that makes sense. All right, next. And I, and I just moved on. So I just want to encourage you in that. I also want to say that God predetermined this, and this is interesting. When he, he's talking about the two thieves on the cross, and, and, and here he is, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what they're saying at this at this point. Uh, as you read the other Gospels, you see that. Think of the Passover lamb. Uh, and the way that they did this in, in the Passover coming out of Egypt, there's a, excuse me, there's an Egyptian word called sopt. And what that word is, is it, it means the trench uh, that would be in front of someone's door that kept water and mud and, and rain from coming into the house. And what would happen, it's an Egyptian word, like I said, is, is that the lamb would be slain there outside for the Passover. The blood was drained into the sop, and then placed on the doorpost and the lintel. Now the lintel is that top piece above the door. It's... It's very simple. It's, it's the header. Some people in construction would call it, well, the header. So that's the top piece. And then the two doorposts. So here you have this blood, and they're taking hyssop branch, which is indicated here in the crucifixion of Christ as well. And they take that, and they put it on the top, on the lintel, and they put it on both sides. What does that form? It forms a cross with the Lamb of God in the middle. And here you have the Lamb of God on a cross, thieves on both sides, the blood of the covenant about to be spilled. The other thing about the thieves is God shows a vivid picture of humanity with these two thieves on the crosses to the left and to the right of Jesus. One wants a Messiah of his own making. He wants a Jesus according to his own desires. If you're the son of the God, son of God, take yourself off that cross and take us with you. I want a Jesus that benefits me. I want a, I want a God that I can put in my back pocket. That man forfeited his soul that day. 
The other man embraces Jesus. He takes responsibility for his own sin. And then he seeks God's mercy from Jesus. And he finds it. Both men were initially mocking, yet somehow one man's heart softens. And the other suffers the loss of his soul for eternity. And they were both equal there. They were, they had, there was nothing they could do. Now the man that, that received God's mercy there on the cross, he didn't get baptized. He didn't go to church potlucks. He didn't serve the Lord in some small or large way. He simply believed. And that's a model for us. Anything I do for the Lord is a response to his grace. Anything I do for the Lord is because he is the one that gives me the desire to serve in some way. And, and yet this guy, the first guy, he wants something from Jesus. He's saying, you know what? You sort of owe me this. You, if you, I want you to prove to me. Uh, I was sharing with the same guy, Bob, in Arizona last week uh, about my daughter uh, being in a horrible accident, which is part of my testimony of how I came to Christ. I had already made a, a profession of faith. And then a couple of months later, and I had been praying, the Lord, show me that you're real. Show me that you're real. I mean, demonstrate to me that the reality of who you are. And the day after Christmas in, in 1983, a couple of months after I had gone to this church and my life got turned upside down by this guy named Jesus, and I'd been praying that, guy pulls across the state highway in front of us, and, and I hit the windshield, tore my forehead off, popped the windshield out, and my daughter got ejected at eight years old, got ejected from the VW bus that we were driving in. We're going 60 miles an hour. She didn't have a scratch. Not a scratch. And I'm telling you, absolutely, I mean, is, is, there is absolutely no embellishment in that story. She got up, she brushed herself off, I was told, because I was out, I was under the dashboard by that point, and went over and sat down in the median. And the Lord spoke to my heart. It was one of the first times that I really experienced the voice of God speaking to my heart, saying, you need to learn to let go and to trust that I am who I say I am. And I told Bob, I said, you know, I decided at that point it was probably not a good idea for, for me to ask God to prove himself to me. Um, and I stopped. And I trusted that he is the God who he says he is. There's no other explanation for my daughter being alive at that point. Yeah, she went to heaven in 2009. But, but at that point, it was, it was absolutely miraculous. Um, out of that, my response was to want to serve God. My response was a hunger for his word. My response was, Lord, I just, I just can't get enough of you. This guy had no chance for any of that, and yet was, he is absolutely as redeemed as, as anyone in this room. Praise God. I want to look at some slides here. I want to go into some a little bit of geography. You guys know that yeah, I like doing this because... It's important that we can tie a physical place, an actual physical place, to the narrative when we're teaching, when I'm teaching in different parts of the Bible, because it's important that we understand where this happened. And there is a biblical explanation for why it's important in this particular case, and we'll get to that. 
But there are two primary places in Jerusalem where it is supposed, and I want to underline that, that Jesus was executed, that he went to the cross. There's one, the first one is called the Garden Tomb or Gordon's Calvary. I've been there a couple of times. My wife and I had a, a beautiful worship service and communion there uh, as we looked at the tomb and we looked at Golgotha, the place of the skull. And, and the first one, it was, it was just a, a very peaceful garden setting. And, and yeah, it's been 2,000 years since these things took place. And so as we look at Gordon's Calvary, Understand, it was not unearthed. It was excavated in 1867. It was not known until that time. The second place we'll look at in a little bit is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, oh, boy, is it over the top. But um, anyway, as we zoom up here in the next slide and we look at uh, Gordon's Calvary, uh, the garden tomb is in one spot. As you see, it's to the left. of. I have a red X in there. To the right of the red X is, a, is Golgotha, this place of the skull. And it's an interesting place. If you look underneath the word Golgotha, you see a bunch of little white rectangles. Those are buses. Golgotha is in a bus parking lot in Jerusalem. Um, go to the next slide, please. This is the parking lot. Standing where the red X was in the last slide, looking towards Golgotha. Look at the cliff. It's an interesting place. Uh, zoom up on the cliff. This is what you see. The place of the skull. Interesting. Has it been there for 2,000 years? I have no idea. Does it fit the surroundings for where the supposed place was? Yes, it does. Uh, it says that he was taken outside of the city and crucified. And this is just outside the Damascus Gate in Jerusalem. Very interesting place. Um, uh, go back up a slide, please. Yeah. Look on top of the hill there. Now, there are some people that suppose that Jesus was crucified on top of the hill. Um, I tend to think not because there were crowds of people coming out of the city. There was a road there. And I tend to think that he was crucified down low where the parking lot is now. And yet nobody knows for sure. What we do know is that Dwight Moody, the great Bible expositor and evangelist from the 19th century, got over there and he went up on top of the hill and preached. And the Muslims were so incensed, they built a fence. And it's there to this day uh, because they didn't want anybody going up there and preaching the gospel of Christ. And so uh, interesting. All right. Uh, moving on here, going to the garden tomb. This is the garden tomb. There's a trough there where a stone could be. Uh, again, some of the problems, there's problems with both of these sites, and I'm not going to go into There is a ton of literature on these. And so welcome you to make more study on your own. But just briefly, uh, these particular or this particular tomb is thought to have been initially excavated about 700, about during Isaiah's day, about 700 years before Christ. And so it wouldn't be a new tomb. See, because it was a new tomb. It was Joseph of Arimathea provided his tomb, which had not been used. And so this doesn't fit as it dates archaeologically. It does fit as far as the surroundings, because Golgotha is, there's, it says that there's a garden there, and Golgotha is nearby. The, the tomb would be nearby to where uh, where they, and we'll look at that next week, where they bury Jesus. But, so next slide. 
looking here at uh, this is if you look just to the left, it, you see there's a stairs at the top left. Uh, the wall coming out to that would be right where the tomb is. And so, again, Stacy and I went there. We visited. We walked inside the tomb and looked around. It was fascinating. Um, fairly recent archaeological discovery. Uh, some things point to that being the place. Some things don't. Now, the next place is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, and looking on this particular slide, go ahead. Uh, it is due west of the Temple Mount. The, the Gordon's Calvary was north, sort of north-northwest. And now this is due west. And the reason why I had the city wall there uh, in the previous slide, and I have a city wall here, is it plays a significant part. We know that he was executed outside of the city, and I'll get to a passage in Hebrews in a minute. But um, in the 4th century, in the 300s, um, Constantine, Emperor Constantine, Emperor Constantine of Rome, his mother, Helena, came to the Holy Land, and she went and systematically marked out sites where it was thought that major biblical events had taken place. That's why there's this huge shrine over Peter's house up in Capernaum. You actually look down through a glass floor into the house. And, and you know, it has all the religious accoutrements and all that. But Helena went all through the land. Now, she got to this place and found that the Romans had built a temple to Zeus on the site. It was thought, and again, this is not biblical information this is extra biblical but it was thought that the romans had built this because they wanted to wipe out any aspect any landmarks from christianity much like we see some of the islamic groups doing today they want to get rid of the antiquities and so it was thought that the romans had built over this and they had leveled this it had been a stone quarry at one time and that would add to the thought that it was where jesus was crucified and where golgotha was at that point but she built it on the speculation that it was the place where Jesus was crucified. Nobody knows. And, and I want to take a look. Now, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's shared by the Greek Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, the Armenian Orthodox, Syriac, Syriac Orthodox, Egyptian, Coptic, and Ethiopian Orthodox churches. This is like a bunch of really old churches. And when Stacy and I were in there, we're like standing there. And we hear these, this noise, and it sounded like uh, nothing we'd ever heard before, but it was like if you took a stick and you hit it on the ground, which is exactly what it was, and you multiply that by maybe 150, it was like this romp, 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 and it was getting louder and louder and louder, and we're like, what's going on? You know? and, and all of a sudden, this religious procession came through with these guys with all these big hats and, and the robes and the stuff, and they all had these, these big sticks. And in unison, they're pounding them, and they're, like, commanding the attention of everybody for a block around. And, and I was like, I don't know what this is. But whatever it was was significant to one of their religions. So, but what we noticed there was that, again, the accoutrements of religion are very pronounced. Next slide. This is their version of Golgotha. Okay, um, and you can see there's a couple of cases by the floor. There's actually stones down there, and, and the doors behind the doors is supposed to be 
you know, the place of the skull. It, again, I don't, I, I just, I, I had trouble getting past all the glitz to be able to see any of the archaeology, but that's fine. Next slide. Now, this is the tomb at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Looking up from the ground at the ceiling, there's a big beam of light that shines right down on the tomb. And then the next slide, this is me looking down. And this was at Easter when all these people had, they have this fire ceremony at Easter. And, and it's, everything's made out of rock, so you can't burn the place down. But, uh, well, there were aspects of that that were wooden. But anyway, just to show you some of the interesting things about that, uh, I don't know. Next slide, final slide in this. You can see the garden tomb or the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You can see where the Temple Mount is. The Fortress Antonia is the little blue square off to the top left of the, the Temple Mount. That's where Jesus probably was, where the Praetorium might have been. The Praetorium might have been very near the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as well. It could have been west. Uh, we don't know exactly where the Praetorium is. I, I've taught it as though it was at the Fortress Antonia because that was the military base that Rome had in that day. So take your pick. Uh, again, it's just for your information, uh, the two prominent places where it's believed Jesus was crucified. And you know what? I think if the Lord wanted us to know, it'd be really clear. But I think there's a danger if we knew. We would, we, we would, I don't think it's important to him where. I think it's important to him what took place. And, and I mean, we would probably duplicate the thing all over the world and, you know, put little plastic images. And, and you know, it's, man does that. And, and very often what churches end up having, they have an edifice complex. They truly do. And it's, it's not about the building. It's not about the geographical place. It's about what happened there. Uh, I think it's interesting. And I, like I said, I'd like to show these things because I want you to have a point of reference. But really, it's take your pick. And what I talked about as far as the city wall goes, it's very important. Uh, these guys, they lived in walled cities, and the walled cities had gates. They didn't have too many gates because every time you had a gate, you had exposure. You, you were putting risk out there uh, for enemies to come through. So they had a few gates around. As I mentioned, the Damascus gate fits Gordon's Calvary. I couldn't find a gate that would fit on the side of the city where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. And in Hebrews chapter 13, we read this. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city. And in that, I'm saying, he's saying, here it's not important that we pay attention to the geography. We don't have a continuing city here. Our city's there, and we're waiting for it. The new Jerusalem, the holy city coming down out of heaven from God, and we read the book of Revelation, far exceeds anything we could have here. It says, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, let by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So again, what's our response? Worship. What else can you do? What other response is there to the one who would go and take your place, take my place on the cross? Verse 19, now Pilate wrote a title and he put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And again, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Interesting. Why would it be in three languages? Hebrew was the language of the Jews. Greek was the language of their culture. Latin was the universal language for the world, the known world at that time. And so here Jesus being, again, proclaimed king of the Jews, also king of the Gentiles, and king over the nations of the earth. I was looking at this and I was reminded of the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and go to Jerusalem, to the Jews. Go to Jerusalem, Judea and then to Samaria. Samaria is for the Gentiles and on into the northern part, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I thought, isn't that interesting? There's sort of a tie there. And I'm not trying to make a case for that. But I just thought it was interesting that there are those three sections there as well. And, and, and we know that in Hebrew, the Jews glorified in the law. They glorified in, their, in, they gloried in religion. In Greek, the Greeks gloried in wisdom. And in Latin, the Romans gloried in dominion and power. And he's the king over all of it. So something else about that. Go ahead to the next slide, please. Yeah, and this is just somebody's mock-up of it. But there's also, I noticed that a lot of times in Catholic circles or in some of the Orthodox Church circles, that they have a sign over the cross that says INRI, I-N-R-I. And, and I don't know if you've seen that. I've seen that before. Uh, and I wondered what that was for a long time, and I began to look at it. And if you look at, next slide, the Latin is on the bottom. It's an acronym for Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, from the Latin. And so... When you see, next slide, uh, something looks like that. Like, And again, and there's a whole deal too, guys. One of the things that the Catholic Church presents is Jesus on the cross. I got news for him. He's not on the cross anymore. He came down. Uh, but that's just to show Henry and all that. Um, there's a particular reason why, if, and there's nothing wrong with wearing a cross, Uh one of the things that's true of the Protestant church is that we don't observe a crucifix because the work is finished. Like I said, it's done. He came off the cross. Redemption was accomplished. You don't put him back on the cross. And one of the things the Catholic church teaches is that you put him back on the cross every time you take communion. And it's just not so. It's a false doctrine. It's not something that honors God, I believe, in the least. I believe to try to put him back on the cross is falling short. And so when, you know, if I were going to buy my wife a cross, I would get one that has an empty cross. And that is a statement in and of itself because the cross is empty. The meaning is there. And I'm not going to make a big deal about it. I mean, when I went to visit my brother in the hospital, he was in intensive care. I saw that he had a crucifix on his neck. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And I'm glad he's wearing a cross. <laughs> but, you know, again, it's just for what it's worth. Uh, verse 21, I'm going to pick up a little speed here because I do want to finish this section this morning. So I beg your indulgence if I run a little late. Uh, verse 21, therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but that he said, I'm the king of the Jews. And then Pilate answers, uh, no doubt with a bit of derision. Um, what I have written, I have written. In other words, you're stuck with it. Uh, 
Again, he did not like the Jews. Um, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they actually specifically say that they put the writing over his head on the cross. Uh, and uh, verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. And now the tunic, a tunic was a coat. That usually had an inner tunic and an outer tunic. This would be his inner tunic. He'd been stripped and then redressed at some point. Uh, his tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Uh, there were normally four soldiers that attended to a crucifixion. You can bet, because of the size of the crowd, the amount of soldiers they sent to the garden a few hours before, and the size of the crowd that was there before Pilate at the Praetorium, and there was a big crowd that got stirred up. You can bet that there were more soldiers than four, but the four that were specifically tasked with his execution are the ones that are being referenced here. It says, they said, therefore, among themselves, verse 24, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, uh, referring to Psalm 22 here, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It says, therefore, the soldiers did these things. Psalm 22 is, I would encourage you to read that. It is a highly charged messianic psalm. And the crucifixion is all over the place in it. I'll, I'll quote a little bit more here in a minute. Verse 25, Now there stood by the cross Jesus of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And so the three Marys that were there, the, the, his mother obviously, uh, and then the other two Marys, part of his inner circle. Uh, Clopas thought to be the mother of the sons of Zebedee, uh, the one who asked Jesus, uh, yeah, gee, do you have a, a really special office for my sons? And and he's one on his right, one on his left, and he said, you don't know what you're asking. Anyway, um, verse 26, And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, that's an idiom. He's not saying, Woman, like, you know, if it's a woman, get me a drink. You know, that's, no, that's not what's happening. Um it was actually a great sign of respect. Uh, interesting. Jesus uses this term at the very beginning of his ministry. He recognizes his mother at the wedding in Cana, and he uses the same term. He says, woman, what have I to do with you? Remember when they ran out of wine? Well, the point in that was is that it's a sign of respect. He's saying, what can I do for you, mom? It was how we'd say it, uh, but it was a sign of respect. It was a, it was a term of endearment. When he used that, and so when he says, woman, behold your son, there's no disrespect. There's actually the opposite going on here. And he says, uh, to, to behold your son, he's saying, mother, I'm giving this guy charge to take care of you. And he said to the disciple, and he's talking to John, because he's talking about you know, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, and John refers to himself that way in this gospel. He says, behold your mother. And he's saying, take care of my mom. Just take care of her. Make sure that she's okay. Evidently, Joseph was long off the scene. I think it's interesting. Jesus had other family members. He had brothers. But the Bible tells us they didn't come to believe in him until after he had died. And so he is giving John, who's closer than a brother, charge over his mother's care. And his brothers would come along later, and they would come to faith. And James would actually be an apostle in, in Jerusalem and all that. Uh, so 
Uh, after this, it says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all things that were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. It says, after all things. Again, I'm not going to go into the other gospels, but there's a great deal that takes place uh, between um, verse 27 and 28. After this, after the three hours of darkness that came on the land, after Jesus in that place had suffered unimaginably, after he drank the cup of God's wrath, when he uttered, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I mentioned, where God turned away from the Son, having had full fellowship with him from birth, as he turned away, Jesus proved, I, I can imagine the aloneness that Jesus experienced in that moment is unlike anything that we would ever experience as far as being alone. He was completely by himself and wearing the sins of the world, the full impact of the wrath of God. The Bible calls him the propitiate. You know what a propitiate? But propitiation, it's a big Bible word. It's only a couple places in the Bible. But propitiation simply means to absorb wrath. And so Jesus is absorbing the wrath of God for you, for me. And after this, there's so much that goes on. After all of that, he says, I thirst. Verse 29, now, 29, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. Now, sour wine essentially would be vinegar. Uh, it was a common drink in those days. It was a common drink with the Roman soldiers. Uh, water wasn't purified then. They didn't have chlorine in the water. They had wine in the water. They had alcohol, a low alcohol content in the water. And when it was sour wine, when it was that, it was wine that had been let to ferment to where there was alcoholic content enough, but it essentially had turned into vinegar. And, and so they're using that um, to quench his thirst. Something that's interesting about this. Now think about this. He has been through hours and hours of torture and torment. His, he had lost a great deal of blood between the scourging and then the walk to the cross and then hanging on the cross for hours himself. He would have been extremely dehydrated. Um, Psalm 22.15 says this. Again, back to Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaw. Have you ever been so thirsty your tongue just feels thick? And it's, his would be like stuck in his mouth because there was no moisture in there at all. Uh, it says, you have brought me to the dust of death in Psalm 22. Interesting, the other Gospels tell us that when he had said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, his speech would have been so unclear at that point that it says that they thought he was calling for Elijah. They're just guessing at what he's saying. And, and they're supposing they can't because he was impaired. He was dying. He was extremely, um, uh, yeah, that word. Why do that? I hate it when words drop out of my head. Uh, <laughs> he, he was dehydrated. That's the word. He was extremely dehydrated. And so he says, I thirst. And there's a reason for that. Verse 30, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, 
He said, and I believe he said this with all of the clarity that anyone would ever need, it is finished. Very clear. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Luke includes, Father, into, my hand, into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, but that great cry, crystal clear as it was, it was done in the present tense. It was, it is finished. It has been, it is, it always will be finished is what's implied by the text, the structure of the sentence. He didn't say, I am finished because he's still at work. He didn't say, you're finished because you're not. I know better. I know I'm not finished. But redemption is finished. That work that was promised in the Garden of Eden was done for any who would come. Free gift. Absolutely free. A changed life. And we'll talk about that more with the resurrection, but a truly changed life. To go from aimless and wandering to having a point, to having a purpose in life. There is so much that is happening in this moment as he says he's finished. I had some Mormon boys come by our house week before last and wanted to talk to me um, about Mormonism, of course. Uh, they didn't know that I was still listed on their roles, which is kind of silly, but um, that's a whatever. But as I spoke with them, as I talked with them and, and, and shared with them, I, I just shared, you know, I have a burden for you because... You've believed the lie. And, and you have been so thoroughly indoctrinated that it's hard for you to see your way out of. But I want to tell you that the Jesus that you serve is not the Jesus of the Bible. And as I shared with them, I, I told them, and, and I got blank looks back. Um, and I said, let me ask you something. Are you saved by grace? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're saved by grace. Yeah, we're saved by grace. That's right. Yeah. I said, yeah, but is that all you're saved by? And they looked at me, didn't want to answer. And I said, yeah, because you're also saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, which there's no such thing in the New Testament. You're also saved by water baptism. You're also saved by good works. Is that true? And they said, yeah. I said, do you realize what you're doing in that? Do you realize that you are adding to the work of the cross? You are saying the cross is not enough. Do you have any idea what an insult to the heart of God that is? Just that statement. Well, we really love you. Well, you know, deal with the facts. And it was very sad because they went away thanking me for my time and, you know, with some trite things. But the point is, what they were saying is it's not finished. What they were saying is we're adding to. And this news is so wonderful. The gospel, the word gospel means good news. It is so wonderful. It is so spectacular that you dare not add anything to the finished work of the cross. Praise God. You know, whatever heartaches we endure, um, I sometimes avoid in the midst of a crisis quoting scripture to people because there's a time for that and there's a time to, as the Bible says, to weep with those who weep. 
and to mourn with those who mourn. But finding comfort in our trials can be found in understanding the depth of the cross. Whatever sense of abandonment, whatever sense of loss, whatever sense of pain, whatever sense of hopelessness, what Jesus went through, what he was going through at that moment, is something that we will never experience. And he went through it for us. We have, however, been called to the fellowship of his sufferings. I'll close with this in Philippians 3. The Apostle Paul writing, I want to be found in him. Amen. Not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, through what we just read about to this morning, which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Interesting. Being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So how much love, gang? How much love? Uh, I love, I saw a t-shirt once that said, nails didn't hold Jesus to the cross. Love did. And I would agree with that. It says he bowed his head and he gave up his life. He surrendered his life. He didn't die of crucifixion. He died because it was done, because it was finished. And when it was finished, he no longer needed that physical body. It was done. And he gave up his spirit. He surrendered his spirit. He willed that his body stopped functioning in that moment. So much so, and we'll read next week, where the Roman soldiers had a big wooden mallet, and they would go break the legs of the guys on both sides of him, and they'd realize he was already dead and prove it by putting a sword into his side. We'll talk about that too. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and, and for this brief look at the cross, the crucifixion, and what that has to do with us. I pray, Father, for each one here, Lord, that we would take the time to do business with you. Lord, if this is simply a refresher of things we already know, we thank you for it. If this is perhaps the first time we have come to understand the significance of the cross, in our life. Let this be the day of our salvation. And if there's anyone in here this morning that that's you, I'm going to ask you to come up and talk to me afterwards. I'm not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot. I want to pray for you and, and welcome you into God's kingdom. For the rest of us, Father, we pray that you would just bring to our remembrance the things that we've looked at this morning, we've raced through, and yet by your Holy Spirit, we know that you will do the work that you want to do through it. So we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this time. Uh, we commit ourselves afresh to you and to your purposes in our lives. We thank you for it all in, in the precious name and through the blood of Jesus, your son. Amen and amen.